It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkist podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, here with Dr. Christina Greer and Katie Honan, as we all wanted to be here to chat with and welcome back ace journalist and friend of the pod, Sally Goldenberg, who's returning to New York City as Politico's new senior New York editor from a year in the national wilderness covering the Republican presidential primary and Ron DeSantis's campaign. So Sally will join us right after this quick programming note from Katie. FAQ NYC is part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom serving the people of New York. As a nonprofit, we really depend on your donations to keep us going. Our investigations, explainers, FAQ episodes, our reporters and editors, we all depend on readers and listeners like you. So please make your gift today. Go to thecity.nyc slash give. Any amount helps, but the best way to support is to set up an automatic monthly donation because those help us to plan for the future. If you already have a monthly donation, you can always make a special extra gift. So go to thecity.nyc slash give to make your donation today. Again, that's thecity.nyc slash give. Thanks for listening. And with that, Sally, welcome back and let's jump right in. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course, Sally, we're very, very happy to have you back. I think you were, it wasn't a full year that you were covering the rest of the country, but it sure felt like it. Yeah. Um, So I guess our first question is, what did you learn about or what new perspective do you have now on New York City? after your time covering this national presidential horse race, and as you've been watching New York City coverage from more of a distance, uh, what what was sort of the biggest takeaway you got from all that? So, well, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be back. Um, Good question. I would say, you know, I was covering Republicans um, and primarily, as Harry mentioned, Ron DeSantis. And I think the takeaway for me kind of, as it relates to New York, I had many takeaways that were national, but, you know, it was interesting to hear rhetoric from the Republican party that just like, isn't so different from the mayor of New York, who's a Democrat. Uh, I'm not talking obviously about, you know, social issues and abortion, but in terms of border security and in terms of the antipathy toward the left wing of the democratic party, particularly like the younger, you know, much more self-identified progressive wing that, that sort of, um, conflict is not so different when spoken by Ron DeSantis as it is by the Democratic mayor of New York, Eric Adams. And so I thought that was kind of validating because I think in New York, sometimes when we're covering him, we say he leans right or he's conservative. And I at least would get pushback like, oh, you don't know what a real conservative is. And now I feel like, okay, but now I do. And it, it really speak very similarly on border security. So I thought that was interesting. I think the the New York national storyline that I found most interesting besides like George Santos, which is a crazy one-off was the, the relationship between Biden and Adams over the Mm. border, just endlessly fascinating to me that like the New York city mayor is like openly attacking, you know, a democratic president who's of the same ilk as he is politically ostensibly has a similar base of voters. I just found that super interesting. And then you know, New York stories that popped were like, I mean, the Adams investigations, the Winnie Greco story that the city's done that I can't say enough good about was just a Thank fabulous you. story. I mean, just fabulous. And we didn't force you to you, say that. Thank you. 
<laughs> no, I, it was so good. It's just like to have people admitting that like a top aide to the mayor was like using her position for like, you know, blatant corruption was just great journalism. But the, you know, the corruption surrounding Adams, I don't know if it's touching him yet. I guess none of us do, but it's certainly everywhere and it's unignorable. Like I'm sure I missed tons of smaller stories along the way, but that was you know, that's uh, that's big and I assume getting bigger. So, Sally, welcome back. We love having you on the pod. Uh, for our listeners, they may know I call you Sally CBS. <laughs> Sally comes with receipts longer than CBS <laughs> uh, whenever she writes a story. Um, you know, I, I talk a lot about, especially Harry and Katie's writing in the city has just been phenomenal these past few months, especially. What are you most looking forward to doing? I mean, we know you start officially next week. What What do you sort of, what are the three things you've got your eye on, especially as an editor, which sort of, is that a slightly different focus? Like explain to me, sort of, will you be on the ground writing and researching or are you sort of 30,000 feet trying to direct stories? Like what do you have your eye on these days? Probably not. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do more managing and assigning and editing the copy than writing. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully not from 30,000 feet, though. But yeah, I think um, you know, I'm going to manage the team in New York City and then kind of oversee Albany. But, you know, there's an editor there. So my focus and also because the news is just so hot right now in New York, I think that's my main focus is to get in and just sort of get the team that's been working on the story focused on a few storylines that, you know, they're pursuing that I think they need to like dig deeper into. Um, Cause there's so many tentacles to this story. So I definitely want to focus on the Adams, you know, investigations and how that's impacting city government. Um, I'm also interested in the budget cuts. I don't, you know, I have to get up to speed on them, but Adams has done a series of budget cuts and there's a lot of um, they seem very fraught and people are protesting them. And I, you know, I, I don't know yet whether that's, I know Harry's done some good, you know, did a good column on this. I guess I'm trying to get my head around, like, is that, you know, are these like haircuts and activists are just complaining because that's what they do? Or are these like really substantive cuts, which they certainly seem to be from the coverage. So I want to get us sort of digging deeper into that, especially ahead of the budget announcement, you know, that comes every like January, February. And I also want to, since Albany is now in my portfolio, I want to really figure out what the races, what the legislative races next year are saying about the political trends in New York. Because even though New York is a blue state, like we have seen, especially in, you know, a few of the city council races, there were some Republican or conservative Democratic uh, successes that I don't know would have happened like in, you know, mm-hmm. pre in 2018 when there was a progressive wave. So I really want to like hone in on those legislative races in Albany next year, you know, throughout the state, but also as they pertain to New York city. And of course the midterms, since the mm-hmm. midterms were so, you know, since the congressional races in New York were so decisive last year or last mm-hmm. uh, cycle, I should say. Mm-hmm. And we still have the question of what maps we're necessarily going to have for those races, which is like this weird zombie question that somehow has never fully gone away. But Sally, before we uh, lock in entirely on New York stuff, I do want to ask you two things about your national takeaways. First, just to 
meditate for a minute on on you know what 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 you've seen and and how things feel within uh within the Republican Party and you know west of the Hudson, I guess. And secondly, in relation to that, with Adams, as you were saying, he can sound a lot like Republicans on border security and some other issues. At the same time, he's saying Republicans, Abbott in particular, but it's something DeSantis was also involved in. You know, we're targeting uh, black-run cities, as he put it, cities run by black mayors. Um, and I, I just love to know how all of that is getting heard or repeated or ignored um, in the national Republican discourse, since we all have sometimes a myopic focus here inside the city. So I'll take that one first because it popped in my head when you asked it. When I started on the beat, and, and really throughout the time I was on the beat, I spent a lot of time watching Fox News because DeSantis went on Fox News, you know, and continues to all the time, as you would imagine a Republican uh, presidential candidate would. And, you know, so I'd see the the uh, cryon, I think it's what, you know, the banner under the, as someone was speaking. And sometimes like he'd be getting interviewed with someone and that would say like New York City mayor. And obviously this is Fox and they're they're very anti-Biden, which I'm sure all the listeners know, but I should just say that. And, you know, the the banners would say like, you know, Democratic New York City mayor uh, agrees that Biden is mishandling border security. So it is being fed directly to um, to Republican viewers. I don't know. I don't think I've seen an ad on it, uh, from a Republican. Wouldn't surprise me if I did, but I don't think I've seen one yet, but they, de it is definitely a talking point or a data point or among Republicans that a high profile Democrat is criticizing the president on his handling of border security. That is not lost on people. Um, I mean, it's not like the main thing they talk about, but it's definitely, you know, they consider it, uh, a point that bolsters their argument against Biden saying that he's mishandling this. Um, and just, and I'm sorry, your first question was just kind of my takeaway on the state of the Republican primary and the race. And, 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 and how that feels nationally. Like, honestly, I didn't know that the country West of the Hudson fully existed until I was like in my <laughs> mid twenties outside of Chicago and LA and it's different out there. And you've been, you've been spending the time and, and, and doing the work and you're about to be right back here in New York city, the only place in the world. So I, I just want to. And Albany, don't forget, about... Harry. Don't forget. I know you didn't know about <laughs> Albany either growing up. But... So the race itself is just not much of a race. You know, when I started the race, I think it was March 1st, I think was my first day or second or whatever. Trump hadn't been indicted yet. DeSantis hadn't announced yet. His numbers in Florida were very good. And he was, you know, he was riding high and he was considered a kind of top tier alternative to Trump. And I think it was I think folks always assumed it would be hard to beat Trump in this primary because he's dominant and he is the Republican Party. And that that was really my main takeaway. That is not news to people who follow national politics, but to me who like only, you know, watched it from a remove, like the fact that like the party just is Trump, the donors who say they're not MAGA. They're fine with Trump. They say they're not. Now they are getting behind Nikki Haley, and some of them do hate Trump. For sure, the Koch brothers are getting behind Nikki Haley. But like, I talked to so many people I would consider moderate Republicans who like outwardly say they hate Trump, but then when you pull mm -hmm. a layer back, they really mm -hmm. don't. You know, they don't. I think if they did, because his negatives are pretty high, I think if they did, there would have been a corralling behind 
probably someone like Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis is actually very similar to Trump in policy and in like isolationist policy. You know, he follows the MAGA thread of the Republican Party, which is much different than the kind of traditional conservative strain. But I think they could have the sort of anti-Trump faction is big enough if it all got together and united behind and whomever, Tim Scott, who's out now, Mike Pence, who's out now, Nikki Haley. And the fact that they never did and there was never like a coalescing around someone kind of tells me they're really not that bothered by Trump because, right. you know, they he's dominant and like he gave rich people a tax break and he told poor people like he'll do what they what needs to be done for them or working class people. And they believe him, even though a lot of what he said never happened. And he's just extremely dominant and he's dominant in. Like I spent a lot of time in Iowa and a lot of time with evangelical Christians. Everything they espouse with family values is, you know, different from how we all know Trump conducts his life. Doesn't matter. They they don't just like Trump. They believe Trump is like or has been like, you know, given this position by God, like and that it's ungodly to be opposed to him. So the hold he has over this party is. While numerically, like I said, you, if you look at polls, there are a lot, maybe not a majority anymore, but certainly a majority when I started who wanted someone else uh, to be the nominee. He still has such a grip on the party. And then you add in these four indictments or, or is it four? That's, well, I think it's 91 counts. And I believe it was four <laughs> separate cases. Yeah, four states. Um, 91 four, counts. Right. 91 counts. And you add that in and you add in this sort of... Um, performance he does every time about being, you know, uh, targeted by the deep state. And he's a stand in for every American who feels unfairly targeted by the system. It's very appealing to people. And he's just he's just stronger than I guess I realized going in. So I got a quick question, Sally, you know, sticking with the national. Because we have heard that, I mean, white evangelicals, especially are just completely bogus. This is a thrice married man who's, you know, cheated on his wives and all the things. Um, so we have to also factor in just utter nonsense and racism when it comes to a certain portion of that population. But what about Nikki Haley? I mean, this idea, I know certain people are trying to coalesce around here, but we've also seen this country does not like women, especially in executive roles. And she is, as much as Nimrata tries to move away from it, she's also a woman of color. So is this just a pipe dream for Republicans trying to, I know that certain people want anyone but Trump, um, even though secretly they're like, these tax breaks are way too good to walk away from. Uh, but could she, do you think that she could be the nominee, sort of having had those conversations in Iowa and across the country? I'm not like Harry. I do believe that like there are places to live other than New York, especially Baltimore, um, my favorite city. But, uh, but I spent high school in the red part of the state, you know, so I argue all states are red states. It's just do you live in the blue part in the major city. So having spent that time in Illinois, these people aren't totally foreign to me um, in a lot of ways. So where does Nikki Haley really factor into this, knowing what we know about female executive leadership? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, Nikki Haley's problem is that is Trump, not to like sound like a broken record. Her her main problem is just Trump. Like yeah. he he's the he is the party. He has changed the party. He runs the you know, just I can't I, mean, I was just like stunned by how many people 
who say they like again who say they don't like him and say they don't agree with him are also with him. So um, that's I think her main problem. And I didn't see. I will say like people said things to me that would undoubtedly be called racist and sexist by Democrats, and I was surprised sometimes by things I heard. I didn't, and it was more directed to Vivek Ramaswamy. I heard so many people call him Vikram, but not like saying it like, oh, I like Vikram. He's good too. I just like Trump better. I'm like, that's not his name. Um, so there was a lot of that. I was at a conference in Iowa where he was asked, and again, they they like his, I mean, he's like a mini Trump. They like him mm-hmm. politically, but someone said to him, you know, the problem for you in Iowa, and I don't think it was meant to be a, like a nasty question. It was like, how do you overcome the fact that you're Hindu and we're a Christian state? I didn't hear that much of that type of talk toward Nikki Haley. I think her name and, you know, her appearance are are more ambiguous. In fact, there was a story in a paper that it's called the Florida Standard. It's the origins of the paper are a little mysterious, but it appears to be like a front for Ron DeSantis. And there was a story that was just like polling, quote unquote, uh, Floridians to see, did you really, did you know her real name? And there were quotes like, now that I know her birth name, I know, I think she's shady, you know, it was so Mm -hmm. blatant. So that is out there for sure. I didn't, I just can't say that I heard a ton of it. I, I mostly what I heard about her was in the negative column. It was like, she's not really taking on Trump enough. She's just avoiding that question altogether. Um, and in the positive column, it was like, she's the one who can actually go up against him in the party. But that decision came so late. It came like a week ago. Um, but I'm sure you're right. You know, like, I'm sure that those those um, discriminatory strains that people have, I think, frankly, throughout the country, Democrats and Republicans, that would come into play. I just didn't hear it so blatantly on the trail. She was also pretty irrelevant until pretty recently. Mm-hmm. Just speaking of mega folks, Lee Zeldin lost to Kathy Ogle, of course, but he lost by like five points. Um, Democrats still have super majorities in both houses of the legislature. Like, but but you can feel some of these these forces looming here are trying to find places of purchase. There's this interesting Casamitidis orbit who now owns WABC, which has nothing to do with TV ABC, where you've got everyone from like Roger Stone to Andrew Cuomo appearing on the same airwaves so um real quick i was just interested in your thoughts on on how those currents could play out could matter here or and obviously in terms of the congressional races as well um or 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 if to some extent for our local governance they continue to be marginal or irrelevant they're definitely not irrelevant trends because you know the the Republicans could, it's not, it's not inconceivable that they could take control again in Albany. I mean, the numbers are not in their favor, obviously, but if there are enough conservative or moderate Democrats, we've seen it before in Albany that they could conference with Republicans. So it's not just party, you know, and, and numbers. It's also the type of, you know, the sort of set of beliefs you have. I mean, there are Democrats in the city council who I believe conference with the Republicans, at least a few of them, and I think got more votes on the Republican line when they ran than on the Democratic line, even though they're registered Democrats. So, yeah, I don't think it's an irrelevant trend. I, you know, I, I was paying attention 
uh, as much as I could to the city council special or or off cycle elections this year. And so two stood out to me that I guess stood out to everyone. The the Southern Brooklyn seats not only stayed Democratic, but the Democratic councilman won by a much bigger margin than I think people even close to him were expecting. And that's an area, that's uh, Justin Brannon, and that's an area where Republicans have done pretty well and came, I think, came close to beating him last time. Um, and so I thought, I don't know, you know, not reading like exit polls or interviewing everyone in Bay Ridge, I don't know if that's because he just he does the local politics and the constituent services well enough to overcome the uh, sort of deficit he has with Republican voters, or if he just ran a great campaign and his opponent uh, didn't. I just I don't know what happened, but he definitely he did really well, which is a good sign for Democrats in swing areas. But then in the Bronx, a Democratic seat flipped to a Republican, and. So you now you have a Republican in the Bronx, and that seat was held by a Democrat who I think like leaned pretty far right before anyway. But that sort of shows that you know people who are in a borough that kind of consistently votes, certainly for president, always votes for a Democrat, are now willing to vote Republican. It's, so I think those those sort of the smaller, or I should say, the down ballot races are really important to watch because I do think they portend trends. And I don't think it should be taken for granted. I mean, I think New York will, certainly New York City will, uh, in the foreseeable future, I think always be Democratic. But yeah, look, you're right. Kathy Hochul did pretty poorly in a race where her opponent was someone who wasn't just a, he wasn't like a Rockefeller Republican. He was like a MAGA Trump Republican who tried to help him overturn the election. And he came within, what, five, four or five points of winning. If we could, um, I guess now pivot, I know we still have to get through a presidential election um, first, but something about this week, I guess the reporting about Scott Stringer eyeing a run, Catherine Garcia eyeing a run. I, I said yesterday it would be funny if the literal same exact people in 2021 ran again, Paperboy Prince, Diane Morales, <laughs> Ray McGuire, oh, Sean Donovan, um, if his dad has any money left. But I wanted to ask you, <laughs> ah! looking ahead... Wait for the letters to Harry. Katie said something that I'm upset about. <laughs> Texting. Go Fine. ahead, Katie. It was a joke. Um, let's think about the 2025 mayoral election, right? I know we've all been thinking and speculating and we have all these people giving, you know, leaking us stuff and I heard so-and-so. But I guess if you want to think about what 2024 will say about 2025, what these most recent down-ballot council elections will say, um, what the Adams investigations could could do. A lot can happen between now and 2025. 20, so I just wanted to get your initial take, um, what you're thinking, and if you want to even reflect a little bit on about 2021. I, I don't know if you want to think back to 2021, but I, I, it seems is, is we're off to the races too cliche and we have a lot of time to get through and a lot of stuff to get through. But if you wanted to start talking about 2025. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think people look at certainly those who would like to be mayor are thinking about it and talking about it. I don't know if they're raising money yet. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. With I guess we haven't had like a filing since these investigations really blew up. Yeah. Um, but I, don't, I think it's actually on the minds of anyone who's like a New York City political junkie. I think two things come across to me and, you know, I haven't been as in it as I need to be. So I could be missing some people or some things and maybe you'll get some texts that I'm forgetting <laughs> someone super important. But um, 
I just haven't seen anyone emerge on the left. Mm. And I don't just mean during the investigations, just throughout the year, throughout the last two years. You have a mayor who's like thumbs his nose at the Democratic president, thumbs his nose at progressives, you know, lied to this. According to the city council, he has his own story, lied to them about budget cuts and kind mm-hmm. of tricked them into passing a budget that cut public school funding. Is trashing pre-K, which is like the one popular thing Bill de Blasio did, you know, is just down the line, you know, really just not a friend to the Democratic Party. It does not seem to matter for his strength um, electorally to date in New York. His poll numbers are bad or they're not where they should be for someone who's, you know, got crime that's not super high and a mm-hmm. relatively decent economy, you know, it, you know, they should be better. Um, I think the left in New York is an organizational mess, and I don't think anyone has really stood out. And those who seem, those who I hear about on the left, just it is hard to see them mounting an organized, credible challenge at this moment to Adams, not because he's so great or so strong, just because I haven't seen that from them. They have to get organized. They mm-hmm. have to like build a, you know, kind of repair a coalition that was fractured when the Working Families Party kind of became a bunch of different things. Um, so I'm not like really, I wouldn't be confident if I were them. And their tactics have been bad. There was like a story in the New York Times that they seemed to leak where the people they wanted to run were then telling the New York Times they're not running. It was just like, yeah. it seems like amateur hour. I would be worried if I were Eric Adams, if they're, especially if Biden wins again, it's different if Trump wins and the president is an unpopular Republican. If Biden wins in, you know, this year, I would be really worried if I were Eric Adams about a moderate. I mean, it's hard to run as a Republican in New York if you're not wealthy. Um, but I'd be re- worried about a, like a independent, a, a personally funded independent, somebody who's going to focus on, you know, no more, no, no more uh, scandal, just sort of getting the government running, hitting him in the areas where he's vulnerable, which is like. You know, there's an appearance, which is not unfair, that he's out all night and partying. And that is coupled with the fact that he's he's cutting things. A lot of his signature campaign promises haven't come to fruition. Some things aren't his fault. You know, like the, the subway homeless problem is just bigger than he. Mm. But it doesn't matter. You know, there's just a perception, I think, that like he's not a great manager right now in a time of mm-hmm. in a time leading management and direction. Yeah. So that's actually where I think he has a bigger vulnerability. I don't know that Catherine Garcia, you know, will be as strong as she was last time because she's been in the bowels of state government and that mm. just a, doesn't usually play well. Um, and as, as uh, Harry noted, she works for Kathy Hochul, who didn't really do so well. But I, I would be I think that's where he's more vulnerable. And that's where I would be worried if I were him. I haven't heard a name from that like sort of type of candidate emerge yet. But as you said, someone, I mean, Sean Donovan's campaign was, you know, just whatever, he got like 2% and spent a ton of money, but someone like that who can tap into resources outside the system and, you know, maybe someone like a Ray McGuire who, you know, has kind of pull with more moderate voters or just has the, you know, the gene of management experience. I think that's, I think that is uh, a bigger threat to Adams right now than the left. Well, I mean, it's interesting, Sally. Obviously, you were listening to our podcast while you were working and on vacation. Uh, but Harry and I were <laughs> talking. <laughs> Harry and I were talking last week, you know, about kind of Adams and a Adams versus a moderate. Because right now, Adams versus a progressive. I've always said if one jumps in, they all jump in the pool, and then it's just 
it's chaos and mayhem and Adams is, is relatively fine. I mean, even with federal probes in the background, even with the fact that he is a black mayor, and unlike de Blasio, who had federal probes and some other things, but not a Cuomo, but someone who's more like a, a Cuomo who can actually go toe to toe with Adams and not in a progressive vein. Because what we've seen is that New York is not progressive blue. Um, and with our abysmal turnout numbers, we know that obviously that's that's not the direction that the vast majority of New Yorkers are going in. Um, and Sean Donovan, my father, my father, my father. I was called him the um, Meghan McCain of the Democrats. <laughs> every every sentence was like, my father, my father, my father. And Sean Donovan to me was like, Obama, Obama, Obama. It's like Sean, Obama, Donovan. Um, <laughs> every single time I was like, okay, I get it. Um, but you know, it's like, we need some, if someone is going to challenge the mayor, I also think that they need some sort of name recognition to a certain extent, because aren't we dealing with the time is of the essence issue? I mean, if we're talking about someone who's not independently funded, don't they need to raise significant amounts of money, essentially by like a July 1, 2024 filing date to even be a credible person? So if we're not talking about a super rich person, how does that happen? And do you think that New Yorkers are that interested in seeing Eric Adams have a challenger where, let's just say someone pops up in January, February, they could really coalesce and get that kind of money in such a short time, money and attention? Yeah, it definitely helps if it's an ind- someone who's independently wealthy or can tap into resources like that. It, it helps a lot because you're right, you do have to build name recognition. And the names that we hear I guess with the exception of Catherine Garcia, they have, and, and Cuomo, of course, they have been names that are more on the left where like a Brad Lander or a Jamani Williams have won citywide. So ostensibly they have some name recognition, but they're not, they would not be challenging him. Well, I don't know how they would do their races, but they would not be seen as like moderate managers. They would be challenging him from the ideological left. Um, so it is, I think you're right that it is hard. I think I think the key for somebody and it and rank choice really changes equations here. So it's hard to game out an election because you don't know like who else is in it, who gets mm-hmm. ranked second, that sort of thing. But I think the key electorally is like it's uniting. It, it's being appealing enough to progressives. And when I say I, I wanted to find like, I mean, the 10 to 15 percent of people who support like AOC, who support the DSA, I don't mean like the people on, on the Upper West Side you know, which I don't think anyone calls them progressives, but to be clear, like, so it's getting Besides that, themselves. They call themselves progressives. Do they? I, yeah. All right. I didn't even, yeah. Like what I, I guess like what we would all call like, like the kind of center left or the traditional liberals, it's getting the, them and there are more of them that, well, they vote in bigger numbers and the progress and the sort of farther left progressives. And that might not be enough if you can't, you have to get into Adam's base and you have to, just to be, you have to get some black votes. You just have to, like he has, he has a very loyal base. Again, though, that the polls are not great. And his number among Latinos who don't vote as a monolith by any means, but his number among Latinos in the last poll was terrible. Um, what I think Adams is going for him electorally, if you really break, if, if it is a 50-50 race, he does well in smaller kind of, pockets of voters that tend to vote one way, like Orthodox Jews. I think the like the the 
how I don't know how many of them are left in a Democratic primary, but the kind of like Staten Island or Katie would certainly know better in Queens, like the the cops and firefighters who are more conservative but might still vote as Democrats. Like he does well there. He does, you know, the flag raisings that he does, I think, are really smart politics because yeah. for like like ethnic groups that in certain cases, certainly like with Hasidic Jews, do tend to vote as a block. He does his politics really well. So that's another thing that's I mean, and that is ultimately, I think, one of the hardest things about defeating him is like for all of his managerial and seemingly ethical problems, he's a very good politician. Like he just knows how to connect with people and he's talented at that. You see it and um, not just when he has bad news coverage, right? It's sort of been a when he was borough president and then obviously as mayor. But particularly, I notice it when there's like a bad story about, you know, FBI raided, took his phones, all this kind of stuff. His weekend schedule is it's like a mosque, uh, a Hindu mandir. It's a flag raising. It's a Greek event. It's it's all it is like a really multi-ethnic, multi-denominational sort of celebration. And he pops in for 10 minutes, he sees them, but that's people who feel seen and it's marginalized communities who maybe didn't feel as much as, you know, Bill de Blasio probably in his head felt like he was really connecting with people. He really didn't. So you're right that he's such a good politician. And it's true. Like, I don't know. People have said who on the left. I'm like, they need to, the left already doesn't like Mayor Adams. So like, it's a preaching to the choir to keep on a religious theme for a lot of those people. But how and who and how could that hypothetical person actually crack into the high voter turnout neighborhoods that maybe do believe Eric Adams is being targeted because he's black um, and and just like him and think that he's um, a great mayor or at least has been treated poorly and unfairly by the people who they also feel treat them poorly and unfairly. So I don't know who it could be like, I you know, I don't know. I guess in 2019, if it was like who could run in the 2021 election, there were some names that surprised us, but I don't know who it could be. And I think you're totally right about him. He really, he benefits in a way from what Trump has said about the investigations against Trump. There is a, and I don't think that's only Republicans. There is a sense that like justice systems go too far. I hear it from Democrats all the time. I don't hear it from Democrats about Trump. Of course, they want Trump, you know, gone. But you hear it from Democrats, too, where it's like, oh, these, you know, these prosecutors are being unfair or they're they're leaking stuff before they have a case. And so if they don't have indictments, you know, if they if this case falls apart, it's hard. It's almost like hard to imagine only because, like, it's so dramatic that they went into his car throughout his details. I mean, yeah. the actions are extreme. I don't think those things, at least I never heard that those things were happening to de Blasio, who had a multi-year, multi-layer investigation. Um but it, those things are pretty extreme. On the other hand, pay-to-play scandals are pretty hard to convict on. Um, makes me wonder if it's something else, you know. Um, we hear a lot about foreign agents and so forth. But anyway, to to your point, I think um, I think that's actually a pretty like powerful line of or a narrative or a line of um, defense he has that like, hey, I'm just being targeted. Like, don't believe what you read. Nothing's happened to me. And I think that does actually resonate with people. If we could quickly pivot, I know we're nearing the end. Um, obviously, we're friends, so I hear a lot about your stories and the people you've covered. But for our listeners, we're really going to mind the deep. Uh, we're not going to get to therapy. I'm not going to ask about, you know, your relationship with your parents or anything. and what. <laughs> <laughs> but 
you know, you've been a reporter, you were a reporter at, at Rutgers. I don't know if that's when you kind of caught this journalism bug, but is there one particular moment or story, especially in New York City, whether it was when you're at the Advance or the Post, that made you realize, like, I don't want to cover anything else. And this is really New York is it for me. I don't know if that's too much pressure to think on it, but it, what sort of story really solidified it for you? If there is just one and if there's a couple, please share. You know, I I loved cover. I actually loved working at the Staten Island Advance, um, such a politically different part of New York City. Um, and I had a lot of fun. Co- and I think that is when I knew I wanted to like cover New York City politics. But I think um, the 2021 mayoral race coming on the heels of COVID, like this race that was just crazy for so many reasons, <laughs> like Andrew Yang mixing it up. First time there was ranked choice. It was being run, you know, as a COVID election. The primary was earlier than it had ever been. So all the summer of it, anyway, it was just, it was like a really nutty election. It was a lot of fun to cover. And I thought it had resonance nationally. I thought like Adams was important nationally. Now I think he is for different reasons, but it was such a fun and interesting and important race to cover. And it's hard to match that excitement when you're on a national trail. Like you don't live in the places you're covering. You kind of have to, you're just removed. Like you're just, it's very hard to like get in it, you know, and like to know it kind of as instinctively, you have to rely a lot more on other people's intelligence and less on your own gut instincts, unless you've been doing it for a really long time. And so, but I do think covering the mayor's race, I had covered the race in 09 um, and in, well, the 09 race is boring. I take that back. I had also covered the race in 13 and that was kind of interesting, but that 21 mayor's race was just wild like having diane morales staff walk out i mean just the whole race was so crazy and so i think that for me was i was like wow this will be hard to top and i have to say it was hard to top as a reporter well i'm gonna ask a chrissy katie question which is i mean katie and i talk about food a lot Uh, (laughs) you all know about katie's famous article was it artichoke parm yes Um, it's not about me you weren't talking about (laughs) but uh what was some of the best food you ate while you were away and what are you looking forward to eating now that you're back? Oh boy, Chrissy. I I mean, I was just really grabbing and going a All lot. that Iowa cuisine? There's not like a don't, you know, culinary don't, you can't bring it up. Iowa. Chrissy is a sensitive I, subject. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a good Italian meal at a place called Luca in downtown Des Moines that was recommended to me. Apparently, like Obama had, I think, a victory party there and it was excellent. Mm. Um yeah, so if you ever find yourself in downtown Des Moines, Luca, good food, really good wine. But it was a lot of like grabbing something at the Hy-Vee and getting on the road because, you know, I joke that, you know, like I live in New York. Uh, I commute primarily by subway or on foot. And I drove more in the last year than I've driven in like the last 10 years combined. Just mm-hmm. like every campaign stop was like four hours across Iowa. So it was definitely a lot of like, Grabbing a salad or a sandwich at the Hy-Vee and eating in the car. What's a Hy-Vee? Is that a gas station? Yeah, it's like the supermarket connected to it. They're pretty nice, actually. Like, I, I, you could eat like the food there. It's not like going to like a Shell station and like on the Jersey Parkway where you're like, yeah. oh, I don't know if I want to eat lunch here. Um, they're they're actually like pretty nice, but I didn't like generally go out to like I didn't have a lot of opportunity to sit down and 
And I wasn't at the Iowa State Fair. My colleagues covered it. So I did miss the fried Oreos wrapped in bacon or whatever it is. Oh. Hmm. Like, <clears throat> we're in the fun part. So I'm going to skip right past the, if there is a challenge. And I remember 2017 and Scott Stringer talking about running against Bill de Blasio. It's hard. And his name's you know circulating again. It's hard to run against an incumbent mayor, period. So we're going to skip past the, would it be easier with this imaginary for now challenger in a primary with rank choice and all that, or potentially in a general, because we have such weird and different systems um, for, for these elections at different electorates and go past that to you're about to be an editor. You've been a reporter for forever. You know how important it is to pin people down. I'm going to try to pin you down in your experience as a reporter, because they're like drivers and pedestrians. Like when you're on one side, you're like, what, what is wrong with these other people? What's made a uh, a good editor or a bad editor in your experience as a reporter? And how are you thinking about what you want to bring to this role as an editor? Ah, oh, that is a good question. And I'm going to have to be diplomatic, which I'm not good at. Uh-huh. Um, my goal, so what I've seen and experienced in my career that I think is really critical for an editor is to walk the reporter through the reporting early on that is to me the biggest problem is like just saying like yeah that sounds good i'll see it later and then you see the story and you're like this needs a lot of like i think doing the work i always thought of myself as a reporter over being a writer like it's just what i'm better at and it's what makes me tick and I love reading great writing and I try to be a very good, you know, clean writer. But like the the reason I'm in this business is the love of like the pursuit of information, the reporting. And that needs to happen on the front end. And I think reporters, whether they're one year in or veterans, they need to have that, you know, that that work of like unpacking a story, figuring out, okay, you have these three things, but now you need to like get this document. You need to talk to these people. You need to frame it this way. But if you frame it this way, you need three more data points to really beef up whatever it is. Or like figuring out, you know, how much information do we need before we get this out? Because, you know, someone else is working on it and we want to be first, but we want to be most comprehensive and New York's such a competitive market. Like those, I think doing the work on the front end so that the actual editing of the story is like kind of the most seamless part. That's my goal. I don't, it might be a pipe dream, but like you could tell me cause you're an editor, like, but I don't want to like get copy. Cause that happens. That happened to me on the beat on DeSantis, but it's happened throughout my career where it's like, Oh, I thought we talked about this. And it turns out like editors want something completely different or their bosses want something completely different. Um, and the other thing is like, I want to really like empower because I, was a reporter up until, you know, a week ago, I really want to like empower reporters. Like if I have ideas, I'll assign them, but I, I want to hear from them. Like, I don't want to just come in and like write about this. I care about it. You know, I'm sure I'll do it sometimes, <laughs> but like, I want to like, you know, draw out of the reporters, like what it is they're hearing, what they think is important. And the the thing that I always hated that I know I'm going to do, cause I've already started doing it is like, I'll say like, Oh, we should do something on this. Oh, I wrote it last year. Like, I've done that too as a reporter, but I think it is important to remember that like people don't remember every story. And certainly in times of like where there's a media crush, like a federal probe or a campaign, like themes have to get hit on again. And like you do need news to justify why you're writing it. But even if you don't have it, you need new angle because I'm like, you know, especially in campaigns, you have to like re 
visit old stories. And so I think like coming up with creative ways to do that is something I'm going to, you know, that I want to work on because no reporter wants to rewrite an old story, which I get, like, I wouldn't want to either, but sometimes you have to. As the only non-reporter, I think that that's really important because also you all remember writing certain things. And as a consumer of news, I don't necessarily remember every single story that journalists have written. So it may have been a big deal in the room where you all are, but as just a a consumer of news, it's like, maybe we missed it. So I appreciate that kind of rehashing with the news twist. Thank you, Sally CBS, for joining us. Welcome back to New York properly, officially. We look forward to seeing what you do. Thank you. Back back Monday, will they see will they see the immediate Sally effect like Monday morning? Fingers crossed. I have a few <laughs> days of meetings, so start holding me responsible like Wednesday because I have like two days of nonstop meetings in DC Ooh. or Roslyn. But I know, I know, I'm a suit. The worst part of being a boss, I'm sure. I know. They're absolutely, yeah. I'm like an anti-meeting person, oh. but hopefully by mid next week. Awesome. Right. All right. Thanks, Sally. Thanks, Sally. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Sally. FAQ. Wow, wow. FAQ NYC is part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom serving the people of New York. As a nonprofit, we really do depend on your donation to keep going. Our investigations, explainers, FAQ episodes, our reporters and editors, all of it depends on readers and listeners. So please make your gift today. Go to thecity.nyc/slash give. Any amount helps, but the best way to support is to set up an automatic monthly donation because those really help us plan for the future. And if you already have a monthly donation, you can always make a special extra gift. So go to thecity.nyc slash give to make your donation today. Again, that's thecity.nyc slash give. Thank you again for listening. As ever, FAQ's work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc, and the pod also receives support from P&T Knitwear, an independent bookstore, cafe, and event space on Manhattan's Lower East Side with a podcast studio that can be freely reserved for community use. The podcast is a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists, and is affiliated with the Colin Powell School at CUNY's City College, where I am one of the Moynihan Public Scholars inaugural fellows. I was, of course, one of the hosts of this episode, along with Katie Honan and Harry Siegel, who's our executive producer, and our engineer is Adam Kamara. A special thank you to our guest, Sally Goldenberg of Politico. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, be warm, be well, and we'll be back soon with more.